God said to Abraham, he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so, Father, as we turn our attention and our hearts to your word, O Lord, we recognize that you are God, that you're holy, that you're seated upon a throne, that you will judge the living and the dead. We believe tonight, Lord, that your eye is upon all, that your ear is open to all things, and that nothing escapes your sight. And Lord, as the sheep of your pasture and the people that you've called, we have a responsibility in our relationship to you. And we ask you, Father, that tonight you would help us to understand and to remember again who you are, that you're God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. We know that you're for us and not against us. We know, Lord, that you'll finish the work that you began. We know, Lord, that you keep us in on every side. We know, Lord, that in us dwells no good thing. And Father, we trust you for our preservation and our keeping, but we need you, Lord, in these most perilous of times. So would you please, Lord, instruct us tonight? Would you soften and open up our hearts? Would you put your finger on those things, O Lord, that need to change? For it's in Jesus' name that we trust and believe you for these things. Amen. Amen. Um, Chapman's University published a survey of America's greatest fears. And I printed up the top 10 of America's greatest fears in a survey of over 1,200 adults from the year 2017. And the top 10 fears were, uh, number one, and this isn't the list that counts backwards, but it puts the highest first. And number one is corrupt government officials, 74.5%. Uh, very afraid of corrupt government officials. Then number two, terrorist attack. Number three, not having enough money for the future. Number four, terrorism. Number five, government restrictions on firearms and ammunition. Number six, people I love dying. Number seven, economic or financial collapse or calamity. Number eight, identity theft. Number nine, people I love becoming seriously ill. And number 10, issues related to health care or health care services being provided. Those were the top 10. Now, it went on to rank um, the top 80, you know, but kind of giving, and, I, and I, I'm not going to obviously read you 80 things that Americans are afraid of, but I'll just read a couple of them from the list. Uh, identity theft, again, in a different way. Widespread civil unrest, nuclear weapons attack, government tracking of personal data, the collapse of the electrical grid, pandemic or major epidemic, being unemployed, random mass shootings, theft of property, uh, devastating tornadoes, uh, earthquakes and hurricanes, natural disasters, racial hate and crime, dying on the list. Uh, this is a good one. Technology that I don't understand. <laughs> Amen. You know, people are afraid of it. Germs. Anybody afraid of germs here, you know? Others talking about you behind your back. A significant other cheating on you. Clowns. Blood. Zombies. It's on the list, you know. And so it ranks and it goes through the, the list of the things, 80 things that Americans fear. Now, what doesn't surprise me, but it does amaze me, is that nowhere on that list is there a fear of hell or a fear of God. 
or a fear of a day of judgment or a day of reckoning. Nowhere on the list of things that are of a concern or in the mind and the hearts of American people that they are afraid of. Now, I am an American. I live in this country, and I uh, can relate to every one of those fears. And I'm also a pastor. And I can tell you from my vantage point as an American and as a pastor that it is true that people are not, by and large, afraid of hell, afraid of a judgment to come or a day of reckoning. That is not something that, by and large, is on the radar. Now, it's sad that for the general population that is true, but I understand it. People that are blinded from truth, people that are estranged from God, it doesn't surprise me that they're not afraid of Him or afraid of hell, though they should be. But what's even worse than that, and what does surprise me, is that there's a vast swath of the population that is saved, that does know the Lord, that should be afraid of God, and for the most part, what I observe is that they are not afraid either, that that is not a concern uh, to the average person that calls themselves a Christian. Well, in our text that we just read, in our, our kind of our, our topical type study that we are in tonight, we see that God tested Abraham, and the test that was laid out before him, God said that part of his intent in putting that test in Abraham's path was to see whether or not he did indeed fear God. Now, Abraham, obviously, we know, was someone who knew God, who had a history with God, that was familiar with God, and even beloved of God. And all of those things were real in Abraham's life. And yet he never lost, in the context of all of that, a healthy sense of a fear of this God that he was serving. God said, now I know that you do fear me. Now, the word that's used in the Bible in this context of fearing God, in the Hebrew, it's the word yare in, in Hebrew. And again, that means nothing to you in terms of the linguistics. But the definition of the word is to be morally reverent, to be fearful or afraid. And then it carries with it the connotation of a fear of also displeasing. So to be morally reverent, fearful, or afraid and also with a mind of uh, fearful of displeasing this being. Now, the New Testament equivalent, where the New Testament word translated fear, is the word phobio, and the definition of the word in the New Testament context is exactly the same as that of yare in the Hebrew of the Old. And you'll be amazed to hear that over 300 times in the Bible is the word fear used directly in connection with this idea or this concept of fearing God. That is a part of the relationship that the believer in God is to have with him is that there's to be a moral reverence. There's to be a fearfulness and even a sense of being afraid of also in the context of not wanting to displease. Now, sometimes we hear that and that's almost foreign to us, to be afraid of God, to have a fear. Yes, I understand moral reverence. Yes, I understand not wanting to displease him, but to fear him, to be afraid of him. Well, the Bible says that we are to fear the Lord. Now, the feeling of fear in the human experience is a universal expression. I mean, we all understand what it means to be afraid. It's a constant. 
It's true in the kingdom of men and in animals. God designed us that way. It's for safety. It's for warning. It's for defense. It's for preservation. God has instilled everything in this planet with a sense of or the ability of being fearful for the sake of preservation, of staying alive. It's something that's there from God. So in the biblical context, when we talk about fear or the fear of the Lord, it has a spiritual equivalent to the physical feeling. Now, spiritual fear or the fear of God, as we look at it in the context of Scripture, essentially is the nervous system of the soul and the spirit. So just like we would feel fear in a physical sense in a certain situation that is to be for us a warning so that we might be safe and preserved from danger. So the fear of the Lord is to be in the life of the person of God, a spiritual indication that there is danger or that there is a need to be preserved. And this is something that God has given to us. Now, I once read about, and, and just re-upped on it this week, a, a physical condition known in the medical community as CITP. That stands for Congenital Insensitivity to Pain. And it's a very, very, very small margin of the population that is born with this disorder. But basically what it is, is, is that you're born without nerve endings or the connection that brings the feeling that your nerve endings would have to your brain doesn't work and it doesn't work from birth. And so it means that someone is physically unable to experience any pain at all. And when you first hear of that, you think, man, that would be a nice condition to be born with. Until you realize that someone who's born with this condition will not make it out of their toddler years with fingertips, a tongue, usually teeth, eyes, or any outward extremity. They usually, by the time they can, would have been able to speak their first word, have chewed their tongue to the point where it's no longer existent. There's a story, a true story, of a father who had his finger in the mouth of, of, uh, of a teething child for the sake of trying to comfort the gums, and the child bit the, the, the finger of the father so hard that when he went to pull it out, he pulled teeth out with it because the child couldn't feel the pain to know to let go, to let his finger out. And so this condition that can happen in a physical sense Though it seems like, wow, that's nice, they don't feel any pain, it's actually detrimental to the survival of the human because they cannot receive the signals that would give them warning that they need to change what they're doing. Now, I've never met someone that has CITP, but I have met many Christians that seem to have developed through their spiritual years SITP, spiritual insensitivity to pain. And that is someone who has lost a healthy or a proper fear of Almighty God. And thus they become spiritually debilitated. Right about the time that I was born again, when the things of God were, were fresh and new in my life, and I was just coming to, to, to know God and know truth, and it was just like an explosion of, uh, of life. It was huge. You, know, you guys know what it's like you know, when you first just, God gets a hold of you. And about that same time, somebody gave me a motorcycle, my first motorcycle. I was like, man, this is great. I'm saved, and I'm riding a motorcycle. Can life get better than this, you know? 
And I didn't really know how. I didn't have experience. I didn't grow up riding dirt bikes or anything like that. But I went and got my permit. And you're allowed with a motorcycle permit to drive within a certain distance of your house and, you know, to be on the road with another, you know, driver and all. And I remember the, those first couple of days riding this motorcycle. And I did not know that when you want to turn a motorcycle, you cannot turn the handlebars like you can on a bicycle. It doesn't work. You're moving and it, the bike just won't do it. You lean. That's the way you turn. And I did not know that. And so I was driving down this road, and the road curved. And I, you know, I was in Rochester at the time, and everything in Rochester is straight and flat. It's just a grid, you know, so you don't have to think about it too much. But I was on a road that had a curve, and as I went to take the curve, I tried to turn the bike, and the bike wouldn't turn because you can't do that, you know. And I didn't know the lean trick. And so I said, turn. The bike said, no. And I went right across the median into the lane of oncoming traffic, thankfully not getting killed, over the curb, down the embankment, into the middle of someone's yard, and I just hit the brakes and just did one of these and just came to a stop in someone's, the middle of someone's front yard. It was like right out of Back to the Future. You know? And my heart's going, and I'm just going, oh, thank you, Lord, I'm not dead. Thank you, Lord, I'm not dead. Thank you, Lord, I'm not dead. But what I realized in that moment, and as God was just kind of like there with me, I, I, you know, in that, is I realized this machine that is intended in my life to be a huge blessing has the ability to kill me quickly. I could die. Now, I don't ride much anymore for that reason. You know, I, I, I still do have a motorcycle, but I, I haven't even registered it for the past couple of years. And my logic is that, you know, if I die falling off a ladder, fixing my house, that's okay. But if I die with five kids on a motorcycle, I'm an idiot. And I don't, I don't want to die an idiot, so I don't really ride much these days. You know, maybe when, uh, when, when I'm more expendable, you know, I'll get back to it, you know. But what I learned riding motorcycle is that this thing is to be feared. It, it, it's a blessing. It's a joy. There's something exhilarating about it, something amazing about it. But if I don't fear the laws of science that govern and direct how this thing works, then I'm not going to enjoy it for very long. I'm going to die. Remember that the Lord spoke to me when that happened. And he said, Nick, I'm the same way. He said, I desire to bless your life. I desire to be a part of your life. The things that I'm going to unlock and unfold in your life are beyond anything that you could ask, think, or imagine. But understand this. I am also God. And I'm to be feared. And if you violate the things and the parameters of the ways that I've put out before you, then what is intended to be a blessing could actually be to your demise. And I'll never forget that lesson. It was so important in the early days of my Christian experience that God is God and God is to be feared. The fear of the Lord is an essential ingredient in our fruitful walk with Him for several reasons. First of all, because God is God and God is just. The Bible says that God sees all, that God knows all, and that we will be accountable for everything that happens in our lives. Luke chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus said to us, He said, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hidden that shall not be known and come abroad. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Similar, Jesus said these words. 
He said, but I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. And so everything that we say, everything that we do, even down to our very thought life, all of that is naked and manifested before a holy God, and we will answer for every one of it. God is just. God is sovereign, and therefore he is to be feared. What we do makes a difference, even though we're saved. Another reason that the fear of the Lord is so essential for the child of God is because hell is real. And some people will end up in hell. Hell is not a fictitious place. It's not the conjuring up of someone's imagination thing just to get people to obey, but it doesn't actually exist. Hell is real. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, Do not fear them that can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God, again, being the one that can judge, he's the one who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus would say in the book of Revelation, the book that speaks of the judgment that will come upon the world, he says, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of hell and death. That he is the one that determines who is saved and who is lost, and he does it by himself. There's no court of appeals. There's no jury. There's no other defense attorney besides Jesus Christ himself. He holds the keys. And therefore, God is to be feared because hell is a real place. And he determines who will end up there. The fear of the Lord is also essential for you and I because without the fear of the Lord, it is almost a sure thing that we will ruin our life, our earthly existence. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And the fear of the Lord is essential because sometimes for you and I as believers, it's the fear of God only that exists as the nerve endings that we have as a warning that we're in a bad place or that we're walking in a bad direction. I find this to be more true for someone who's been walking with the Lord for a longer period of time. I know that early on in my Christian experience, when I was walking with the Lord, when I would kind of turn aside or I would begin to go down a path that wasn't right, God would bring, you know, severe and swift chastisement and let me know something that kind of inside I already knew. Can you guys relate to that? As God lets you know that you're, char- you're in a place where you really shouldn't be. But what I've noticed as I've grown in the Lord and gone on is that almost even as a, a parent in the natural realm, that doesn't always happen you know if we think that well okay well i'm just going to kind of live loose and when i get out of line god can kind of just whack me back into the place and that's how i'll know that he's there that's not a very good way to live because god sometimes allows us to make our choices and to trust what he says as to be this is right and this is wrong and if we go this way sometimes he doesn't correct us he lets us go that way but then we experience the consequences of it As a father, I'm beginning to realize this even in the life of my kids. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and she's about as tall as I am, and she could probably hurt me if she wanted to. And I've realized that she's come to a point in her life where she's doing things that I probably would advise against or things that really probably maybe need some correction, but she's beyond the point where I can bend her over the knee and lovingly as a father 
let her know that she's crossed the line and crossed the boundaries. And I find that as she ages, as she gets older, discipline becomes more tricky. Because not only is there no longer the physical, but even the verbal or the punitive measures that I could take as a parent, those things, they don't work the same. There's more strategy that's needed. And I find myself realizing, well, if I say this, well, then sh this is what's going to happen. Or if I correct this, then I risk having it come back around on me this way. And I begin going, oh, my goodness, this parenting thing is hard. Little kids, little problems. Big kids, big problems. And what I'm realizing more and more as she gets older is that she's going to have to learn through the choices that she makes that choices equal outcomes. And I can't be the one that warns her at every place or punishes her at every place. I see her doing something that's not right. And I see the same thing is true in the realm of the Spirit. When we're young in the Lord, God mercifully is quicker to discipline and chastise. But as we grow in Him and as we progress and move onward, He allows us to make decisions based upon what we know is right and wrong and then to walk in this narrow path that He calls us to. And sometimes, church, the fear of the Lord is the only warning, the only thing that keeps you and me from wrecking and destroying our lives. Sometimes there is no other discipline. We're called to fear Him. When we have a healthy fear of God, as the people of God, it will look like something in our life. When we are truly God-fearing people, morally reverent, honoring God in awesomeness and in fear of His person, first of all, what that will do in our lives is that will gain for us the respect, the friendship, and the blessing of God. We look no further than Abraham, right? What did God say to Abraham after it was established that Abraham was, in fact, a God-fearing man? God blessed Abraham and increased the blessing that was already pronounced upon his life in former years. Three times in the Bible, Abraham was called the friend of God. He's the only one in the entirety of the Old Testament who's referred to with that term, that he is my friend, Abraham, my friend, God said three times. The blessing, the respect, and the honor that comes from God will be present in the life of anyone that truly honors God by fearing Him. Another thing that will exist in the life of a truly God-fearing person is that they will be a person of integrity and trustworthiness. Because they're a person that fears God and understands that He sees and knows all things, that's going to translate into the way that person lives their life, listen, in secret and that's going to look like something and it's going to produce something in that person and in that life god said through the prophet samuel to the people of god he said this he said them it's first samuel chapter 2 verse 30 he said them that honor me will i honor but those that despise me will be lightly esteemed and when he's talking about them that honor me, he's talking about those that honor God in the secret place of their heart. It comes from a fear of God. And so those people that have integrity and are trustworthy, and I think of Joseph right off the bat, whom we, we will study in the coming weeks as we get into it in the book of Genesis. A man who feared God and thus was a man of integrity and trustworthiness. And everywhere he went, not only was he prospered, but he was trusted because he was a person who feared God. I think of Abigail, one of the wives of King David, 
whose name was much set by and had a good reputation amongst the servants and citizens and ultimately with the king himself because she was a person who feared God and was trustworthy. I think of the elders in Moses' day, men that Moses chose because they were men he knew that feared God and that wouldn't receive bribes but would judge equally amongst the people. And so when a person fears God, it looks like something in their secret life. Conversely, when a person doesn't fear God, that looks like something in their secret life as well, and it has its consequences. Another thing that a healthy fear of God will produce in a person is that they'll be a person of humility and mercy. I think of Joseph, again, the son of Jacob, who when his brothers, who had sold him into slavery and threw him in a pit, when they came to him and revealed themselves, or he you know, didn't quite reveal himself to them yet, and Joseph was testing them, Joseph said these words. It said that Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. And then he showed them mercy and gave them a chance to prove themselves. And when a person truly fears God, they're going to be merciful in the way that they deal with other people. And so it's going to be a merciful person that fears the Lord. The Bible also tells us that when a person fears the Lord, that person will possess the wisdom of God. It's a famous verse. I'm sure all of you know it well. It's Psalm 111, verse 10. And it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says the same thing in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Same, same exact words, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make good choices. Wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge that we have and apply it in everyday life in a way that has a positive outcome. And what the Bible is telling us is that if we have a right fear and reverence of God and that we're morally reverent before God, that that's going to be the beginning, the foundation of the choices being wise, good choices that we'll make within our life. If you read Psalm 112, which happens to be the passage that I read to you at the beginning in the opening of the service, Psalm 112 gives the heading of, this is the man or the woman that fears the Lord, and then it enumerates the things that you can look for and expect to see in the life of someone who truly fears God. It says that they'll be happy, they'll be blessed themselves. It says that their children, their offspring, will be mighty in the earth and that they will be blessed. They will be happy. I want that. I look at my kids around my table and I don't want to see any one of them fall by the wayside or fall into calamity. I don't want to bring forth kids so that I can be crushed under the weight of what happens to them. No, I want that promise to be true in my life. It says that they'll be mighty and blessed in the earth. It says that that person will be unmoved, that though trial come, though difficulty come, they'll be unmoved. It says that they'll be remembered by God, and twice in the psalm, it says that they will not be afraid when evil tidings come. They will not be afraid. And it's an amazing contrast, an amazing thing to realize when we consider all the things that you can be afraid of, and all the things that touch our lives, either directly or indirectly. And what the Bible is basically saying to us here is that if we have a healthy and right fear of Almighty God, then we will not be affected by the other fears that plague us. But the converse is also true. And that is that if we don't have a right fear of God, then we become a slave to every other fear in our lives. 
but that can be in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and I'm going out of order here, so don't worry about it. You know, It tells us that Jesus Christ himself was heard when he prayed because he feared. You say, wow, even Jesus, the Son of God, in his earthly walk, lived in the fear of his Father? You bet he did. He absolutely did. And because he did, we see that in the life of Jesus Christ, there was no fear in any other thing. If he was standing in the sea of Pharisees that wanted to throw him headlong off a cliff, he stood up and he walked in the midst and nobody dared lay a hand upon him. When they came and they threatened him and they said, Herod will kill you if he sees your face, Jesus would look and say, go tell that fox. I do miracles and cures today and tomorrow and the third day I'll be perfected. Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate in a sea of angry faces. And Pilate would look at Jesus and he would say, Don't you realize that I have power to condemn you and I have power to let you go? And the Son of God, who was bearing the sin of the world, looked him square in the eye. And he said, You could have no power at all except it were given to you from above. Therefore, he that delivered me to you has the greater sin. See, when you fear God, you need fear and will fear nothing else. Because God keeps you in on every side. But when the fear of God is lacking, then we become subjects and slaves to every other fear that can come into our lives. The healthy fear of God produces an abundance of things in our lives. We could go on and on and on. Over 300 times, it produces hope, according to the Psalms. It produces protection against evil in the evil day. It produces satisfaction and it produces prosperity. It just goes on and on and on. On the other side of that, when a person loses the fear of God, when they no longer have that reverence and that awe of his person, what is that going to look like in the life? That's going to produce something equally. What can you expect to see in the life of someone who no longer fears a holy God? Number one, you can expect swift loss and a short life. I think of the Pharaoh in the days of Moses. And Moses came to him and he pronounced who God was and he demonstrated who God was. And Pharaoh looked back at Moses and he says, Who is the Lord that I should fear him? Had no fear of God at all, this man Pharaoh. And what we read as we go on is that his demise was swift and his destruction was absolute. He didn't fear God. He thought he could stand up against him and resist his ways, his purpose and his will. And ultimately Pharaoh's reign was cut short. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in the days of Daniel. And God had privileged him to be the highest and most powerful king in all of the world. And yet he didn't fear God. He exalted himself. And when God said there'll be a head of gold in a chest of silver and a body of bronze and legs of brass and feet of iron and clay, he said, no, there'll be a whole statue of gold because am not I King Nebuchadnezzar. And God said, you are what? And he said, you're a tree that shall be cut down. And in the very moment that Nebuchadnezzar spoke the words and he said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the honor of my name and the glory of my future? And it says, In that very moment, while the words were in his mouth, his nails began to grow, his face began to burst out with hair, and he became a wild beast, and he was humbled and laid to the ground. And God's will and God's word will stand. He didn't fear God. I think of King Solomon. A man who had more wisdom and more light than you and I probably will ever understand or know or comprehend. 
And God came to King Solomon and said, Solomon, if you will walk in my ways and fear me and obey my commands, then I will give you not only this wisdom, but I will increase you with riches, honor, and wealth, and long life. And Solomon walked with God and in his fear for a season. But slowly, by degrees, Solomon lost his fear of God. He thought, well, I've been put in this position, I'm insulated, I'm preserved, nothing can touch me. And little by little, he began to disobey the commands of God. And a man who was given more privilege and more opportunity, perhaps, than you and I could even comprehend, that man died young, probably not even 60 years old. There's loss and demise. Another thing that you can expect to see in the life of someone who loses their fear of God is extreme moral corruption. In the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is talking about the progression of sin and how sin creeps into a life. And he describes it this way. He says, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, and with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And then he gives the source and reason for all of it. He says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When a person loses a fear of God, and they walk in vain confidence, thinking that nothing can affect them, then slowly by degrees... They go further and further into sin until they are morally corrupt to the core. Another thing that a lack of a fear of God will produce in a life is a failure to realize the fullness of God's intended blessing upon that life. The scripture is filled with the testimony of people that had promised calling and purpose, but that never attained to that good thing that God wanted to do in their life and the singular reason why is because they left off to fear the Lord. I think of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. A man who was in line as Elisha had been to Elijah. Gehazi was to Elisha. And yet he left off to fear God. And rather than becoming the great next prophet that could have had a double portion of even what Elisha had, he became a leper and he disappears off the pages of scripture into obscurity. He left off the fear of God. I think of King Saul, the first king of Israel. A man who stood head and shoulders above the rest. A man who had the potential to go down in history as King David did. But he was lifted up in pride and he left off the fear of God. And he became insane. He lost his mind. And a swift destruction came. And a Amalekite cut off his head and took the crown. The New Testament says, let no man take your crown. But his crown was taken because he left off to fear the Lord. I think of the great King David, the gold standard of the kings, whom was trusting in God his whole life, and God raised him up. But when he was strong, it says that Joab went forth to battle, but David stayed at home, and David lost his fear of God. And he took a woman that wasn't his and had her husband killed. And it resulted in 20 years of ministry, all or misery, <laughs> misery in the ministry, until the day that David died, weak, at 70 years of age. He lost the fear of God. He wasn't insulated from the consequences. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, 
in the days of the early church. Two that had the promise of prominence and the hope of being alive in the greatest time, the the golden age that the church has known. But they didn't fear God and they lied to Peter and to the Holy Ghost. And they were swiftly cut off. And what could have been was never realized because they lost the fear of God. And when a person, a Christian, loses the fear of God, they will not be without consequence. So what are we seeing today when we look around not just the world, but when we look around the church of Jesus Christ and we just examine and put our finger on the pulse of that particular aspect of our Christianity, our fear of God, what are we seeing? What are we experiencing? I'll tell you what we're seeing from the ministry, from the vantage point of pastoring. What we see is we see Christians throwing the reins off their lust. The reins are the things that control and steer and keep things in check. And we're seeing Christians more and more just say, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live how I want. I'm going to indulge in what I want. I'm going to experience what I want. And God is just going to look the other way. He doesn't see. He doesn't care. He doesn't know. It's none of his business. We're hearing people say to us, right bold face, right to us, well, we don't share that conviction that those things that God says are wrong are actually wrong. One report came back to us that there was a young person in this church who looked at another young person in this church and said, I want to sleep with you. And they said, well, that's wrong. And they said, well, I don't agree with that. I think it's okay. It's an amazing thing that we're hearing. We're hearing things from Christians, people in the church that are saying, well, me and my wife, we have a mutual agreement that it's okay for us to go out on one another and sleep around outside the marriage. And as long as it's okay with us, then God looks the other way. No, he doesn't look the other way. He calls that adultery and he calls it sin. And you'll be accountable for your sins. And we're seeing that the attitude, and it's way bigger than it should be, is that as long as God doesn't, or I'm sorry, as long as man doesn't see, then that must mean that God doesn't see. And I'm sorry to tell you, but I tell you, that's not true. God sees, God knows, and God cares. When we look around in the church today, we see people walking out on the vows that they made to their spouse. They're saying that they found someone younger. They found someone better. They found someone from their past. They found someone that in an alternate reality they should have ended up with. And they think they can have a mulligan. And that they can just start over with somebody else. And that it's going to be okay. That somehow that's going to lead to blessing. Because God will pardon. God will forgive. God wants me to be happy. God is actually even leading in this. And people are saying that. They're believing it. They've left off to fear the Lord. We're seeing within the church that people just lie like crazy. Three times in the past month, I've had people bold-faced lie right to my face, calling them out and saying, is this? And they say, no, or they say yes, and it's just a bold-faced lie, and I know it, and then I call them. But they don't care. They're hardened. There's no fear of God. We see pastors cheating, stealing, manipulating, steeped in corruption. Another report came out last week of a church in the Midwest, a huge church, very influential ministry, with a pastor for unhealthy relationship with member of the opposite sex. All of it is a lack and a loss of the fear of God. What is the cause of a Christian losing their fear of God? Why does a Christian lose their fear 
of God. Number one, probably it's the only one, but it's a lack of true personal devotion. Listen, the nearness of God in the life of a person always carries with it a healthy fear of that God. I think of the prophet Isaiah, who chronicles his own personal interaction with God in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was in his very presence. He describes it. He says his train filled the temple. The house was filled with smoke. The pillar shook at the voice of him that cried. And he said when he heard the words, holy, 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 the only words that could come out of his mouth were, woe is me. He recognized his own corruption and his own sinfulness. And he was in terror, in awe, in the presence of the Lord. His presence always done that. Daniel, a man of whom there is no recorded sin in all of the account of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Daniel, in the presence of the Lord, fell at his feet as dead and declared with his own mouth, he said that my beauty was turned into corruption. In the moment even my righteousness was held up to the holiness of God, I became as nothing. I was dead before him. He had to lay his hand on him and stand him up. He was so crippled in fear. John, the revelator, the same man who had put his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, saw him in glory in Revelation chapter 1, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. There was a fear of God in him, in the presence of him, in his presence. I think of Solomon and the priests that were there when the temple was dedicated to God for the first time. And he offered his prayer of dedication. He said, God, be in this place. Let your presence be in this place. And it says that God answered and the Shekinah glory of God fell upon the place. And it says that Solomon to his knees, the priests fell on their faces and that they couldn't even stand up to fulfill their ministry because of the fear and the awe and the reverence of God that was upon them. And listen, Christian. When you and I are in the presence of the Lord, that is automatically going to put within us a healthy fear in its right context. And when a Christian loses the fear of God, it is an indication, first and foremost, that that person has become distant from God. They're going through the motions, but his presence has become strangely dim. Human beings have an amazing ability to adapt, don't we? We adapt to whatever circumstances or conditions that we're in. And when a person distances themselves from God, they feel it, but they get used to it. But the void that God's presence was filling needs to be filled with something else. And so a person that grows distant from God will by degrees fill their life with things that will ultimately lead to their demise and their rebellion. It's a lack and a loss of the fear of God. Another reason Christians lose their fear of God is because they have a false sense of security. You heard of O-S-A-S? Once saved, always saved. Oh, I came forward. I lifted my hand. I made a profession. And therefore, nothing can happen to me. No matter what I do, I'm going to be in heaven. Listen, the Bible teaches us that we're secure in Christ Jesus, but it does not give you that kind of guarantee that you can go out and sin however you want, and expect that God is just going to look the other way. He purposefully laid out scriptures that ought to make you and I tremble if that's the attitude of our heart. Don't have a false sense of security. Sometimes people have a false immunity. Well, I'm a king's kid. Because I'm a king's kid, it's all been put on Christ, and so therefore nothing can happen to me. 
No, no, no. Don't deceive yourself. That's what it leads to. It leads to self-deception. Jesus said that in the last days, the days that you and I are living in right now, He said that there would be a great apostasy. He said that there would be a great falling away, that because iniquity will abound, He said that the love of many will wax cold. People will fall away from Him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul said that in the last days, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He said that there would be an apostasy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, he said that just prior to the coming of the Lord, that there will be a great falling away when many people will fall away, turn away from the things of God. And I am telling you tonight that it's happening. The people are turning away from the Lord because they're indulging in their own lusts. And it's happening to people that are even sitting here right now, right in this room. And what's needed is a renewed fear of God. You say, where does that come from? How can I again fear God in a healthy way and have a healthy fear of God? Well, first and foremost, the fear of God is the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. When you read Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and the Holy Spirit is there depicted in His sevenfold personality. It says that He's the Spirit of the Lord, which is the love of God. He's the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, and seventh, but not last, in the fear of the Lord. And part of his very personality is that when the Holy Spirit comes into a life and is abiding in a life and the fire of God is in that life, there's going to be a fear of God. If I were to say Acts 2.42 in a room like this where you guys know the Bible, most of you probably know what that verse says. They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. It's the early church. But if I say to you, Acts 2.43, can you tell me what that says? The very next phrase and sentence, it says that great fear came upon all of them. Fear came upon every soul. That was the fruit of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. That the people feared the Lord. And if I don't fear the Lord, it's an evidence that I lack the power and presence of His Holy Spirit in my life in the way that I'm supposed to. Another source of the fear of God for you and I that need to be renewed in the fear of God is that we need to be filled again with the love of God. You say, wait a minute. The love of God and the fear of God seem to be on opposite ends of a spectrum. Doesn't the Bible say that Perfect love casts out fear? Wouldn't that be a contradiction that if I'm secure in his love, then obviously I wouldn't be afraid of him? Not so when you're talking about the things of God. They're not contrary. When you think about the letter that Jude wrote to the church, that last little one-chapter letter right before the book of Revelation, Jude essentially in that letter gives six examples of people or people groups that fell away from God and were destroyed because of their sin in order to give to you and I a warning that we might fear. But then his application of how we're to make the corrections that need to be corrected, he gives to us, I think it's in verse 24. He says, therefore, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
Because when we're in the love of God, there's going to be a fear of God. We see that again illustrated in the ministry of Christ. Hebrews 5.7, it says that he was heard in that he feared. No greater connection of love than between the Father and the Son. And yet the Son feared the Father. When the love of God is real in our lives, the fear of God will be present with us. What did Jesus say in his warning concerning apostasy? He said, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold, right? So a lack of God's love causes a losing of fear of Him, thus the abounding of iniquity. If we're not walking in the fear of God, it's because we're not walking in the love of God. The Spirit of God, the love of God, these things cause the fear of God to come into our life. So what's the conclusion of the matter as we wrap up our study tonight? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 says this. It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. That means made clear, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, that's drug use, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Listen, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. All of those speaking of varying degrees and ways that you can sin sexually. Nor thieves, nor covetous, the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, God is not mocked. Understand that whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And Jesus, the Son of God Himself, says to us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, He says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And my prayer and desire is that not one of us would fall under the banner of any one of those things that are absolutely as true today as they ever have been in any time of church history. Are you self-deceived? Have you lost the fear of God? I search myself. I ask myself. I'm not above any, any one of these things. And though I teach this message and give it tonight, in no way does that make me perfect or better or absolved from the warning myself. But understand that what we do and the decisions we make carry consequences for us. 
And the desire and will of God is to bless and to pour out and to preserve and to lay before us every blessing and benefit that he would to the God-fearing person as he did unto Abraham. But some of us need to be honest with ourselves. Some of us need, as it were, to cross the lane in the motorcycle and end up in the middle of someone else's front yard and to wake up there with a beating heart and to say, God, I've forgotten. I've forgotten, Lord. I've left it. I've lost it, the fear of God. Come back. My wife told me that... um, whether it was last week or the week before, she was um, over with the kids on the Awana on Wednesday night and they were playing board games. And she said that one of the kids that was there lost a game. And he got angry and he picked up the board game and he threw it across the room, thinking that no one was watching. But my wife, from where she was, she saw the whole thing. She saw it happen. And so she apprehended this young sinner And she said, what's going on? And he, he, she said, his face went stone cold. And his eyes looked right through her like he was looking a million miles away. Guilt from head to toe, frozen. And she said, what did you do? I didn't do it. She said, did you do that? No. And she said, confess. Confess. And if you know my wife, she's so gracious. Love just kind of ease, comes out. You know. She said, confess. And she watched. And, he was, and, he, and it was like everything within him. He said, I did it. And he confessed. And she said, the most amazing thing happened is that when, just when he simply just confessed, she said the ice just melted right away. He became a totally different child right before her, right there in his presence. He softened, his lip began to quiver, his emotions released, and he just began to tear behind the eyes. Joy came back into his countenance and into his being. And she said that he wouldn't leave her side for the rest of the time that he was there. He became the sweetest little boy. This one who had previously rah, thrown, stone cold heart. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I wonder, just as we close tonight, the musicians can come. I wonder if the heart of any here is just beating fast. You say, I've left off the fear of God. At some point along the way, by degrees, I don't know how, I don't know when, but I see this corruption beginning to grow. No self-deception. Maybe some here tonight, you don't even know the Lord personally. You say, who is the Lord that I should fear Him? I'll tell you who He is. He's God. And He's to be feared. And I'll quote Pastor Bobby, the great Pastor Bobby. If you don't fear God, you're an idiot. Maybe tonight there's something that you need to just lay at the altar. As we close the service, I invite you. I want to come and just get clean with God. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I, I need to be renewed. I need to be filled again with your Holy Spirit. I need to know your love. I need to know the satisfaction that was once there that somehow I walked by degrees away from and filled my life with something else. Lord, but would you come back again? I confess, I'm undone.
I'm lost without you. He's here. It's still the age of grace. The blood of Jesus Christ still cleanses us from all sin. But we need, like never before, as the church, as his people, to fear him, to revere him morally, to obey him, to give him his right place as God. He's God in our lives. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us. You've brought each one of us here. And regardless of where we're at, Lord, we need to hear it. And we pray in Jesus' name that the cross would again be our plea. That we would take our place as sinners before a holy God. We ask, Lord, that you'd forgive us for the things that we've allowed in that have replaced you. And that you'd renew and revive in us a work of your spirit deep within us. A deep affection for you. For your person, your kingdom, and your ways. So Lord, help us. Help us. Move among us, Lord. I pray that you'd soften hearts. That you would melt iced over faces. And that you would draw many back to you tonight. We declare our need and we confess our sin. In Jesus' name, as we sing, if you want to come, no one's going to bother you. Spend your time. Talk to the Father. Go back to your seat.